Hi, good morning. Like Dave said, my name is Leah. Um, this is my, I think, eighth summer. I started here in summer of 2016. So I've been here a while, and I will be with the senior girls this year. So if this works... Seven summers? Thanks, I'm not very good at math, so. This is me and my family. So thank you guys, thank you. So I'm the middle child. I lived in Big Bows so that I could ride the rides at Six Flags and so my mom could see me in the swimming pool. Um, she's nodding her head yes, I always had a bow on. That's my older brother, Luke. We got a lot of Star Wars jokes growing up, but I had not seen it until I married Chris. So I, was, I didn't know that. He is supportive and mischievous, like I think every big brother should be. Um, he's a veterinarian. Him and his wife live in Oklahoma with my niece and my nephew. That's my little sister, Lindsay. She is a physical therapist in the Army, and she's getting married in September. So we didn't always get along. There was probably bribery involved in taking these pictures. Um, but it, we, we have a really good family. So this is us. Oh, too far. I think this was 2006. I know it's when I lived in Texas for the third time, so I think I was a freshman or a sophomore in high school. Um, my mom made us wear all of these, and apparently Doc Martens too, so thanks, Mom. Um, I have great parents. You can ask my friends that. It's a biased opinion, but my friends will vouch for you. They call them Kiki and Pops. That's their grandparents' name, and that's just what my friends call them. So my dad was a chaplain in the army. He went active duty in 1993 or 94. Um, he's now a marriage and family therapist. And my mom is a retired special ed teacher. She retired out of Belton, but she taught at Colleen um, for most of her career. Dad being in the army, we moved a lot. I was born in Oklahoma, went Oklahoma, Texas, Hawaii, Texas, Virginia, Texas, South Carolina. My parents moved to Germany and then back to Texas. So. I call myself a Texan. Um, Chris doesn't like that because he says people from Oklahoma are always trying to claim Texas, but this is where I've lived. So that was, I went to Harker Heights High School when that picture was taken. I, and my brother graduated from Harker Heights High School. So this is a throwback picture. That's my dad when he came back from Desert Storm. So he deployed, he went to his first war when I was nine months old. He's holding my big brother. The three people in the front are um, two of my mom's older brother's sons and then my cousin, in the front, the blonde, and then that's his little sister in the background. So I grew up under my dad's teaching. He was a pastor before he joined the army, and I think I took that for granted. So Chris mentioned in his um, life talk that I was baptized on Mother's Day in 1998 by my dad in our chapel um, while Chris was in Colleen getting baptized on the same day. So dad was, always the, was usually the one on stage teaching. We were at church all of the time. Um, because that's kind of what you did when you were in Hawaii. You just went to church, I guess. I, a thing that I didn't realize how rare it was was how I'm surrounded by incredibly healthy marriages. Not perfect, but healthy. My parents will celebrate 39 years at the end of this month. My mom's parents have been married for 62 years before my, my grandpa passed away, and my dad's parents have been married for almost 70 years. So I've really gotten to see what it looks like to be in, all of them are Christians, I'm a third generation Christian, so I think I also took that for granted, um, what God honoring marriages looked like. This is Chris and I as we walked out of the, thank you. Oh, wait, you weren't supposed to see that one yet. So this is Chris and I right after we got married, um, January of 2017 at the Creekside Center. And then the man, the myth, the legend, 
Graham joined us February 8th of 2021, eight days before snowpocalypse set in. So he spent his second week of life without electricity. Um, for the Aggie fans in the room, you may interpret this picture as he is sawing Bevo's horns off at Kyle Field. For the UT fans in the room, you may notice that he took Bevo onto Kyle Field. So um, Chris is waiting to boo. <laughs> He, you can use this up for your own interpretation as to who we cheer for. It will come out later, but this was my family. So this is just my side of the family at our wedding. Um, Chris says he feels like he married into a sequel of High School Musical because we will break out into choreographed song as a main form of communication. It's just what we do. My dad's side of the family. I won't blame that on my mom's side of the family. That is my dad's side of the family. Um, I'm, it just kind of happens. Um, I think it's mainly my dad's older brother, but I spent a lot of time with my grandparents growing up. Only one of my grandmas is in this picture, so obviously I'm in the middle. Three to the left is my granny, my mom's mom. But I spent a lot of, times, a lot of time with my grandparents growing up, and my grandma tells a story about how when I was little, I, I insisted that I do everything by me-self. So me-self can do it. I can do it all by me-self. And the story she tells is I wanted to watch a video on VCR, which when I put this in my notes, I don't, have any of y'all ever even used a VCR? Yeah, cool. So the leaders and Liam, I think, are the only hands that I saw. Thank you, Liam. So I couldn't get the, the VCR out, and so I told my, gran my grandma, I was like, I'll do it all by myself. I got a butter knife, stuck it in the VCR, and you just jimmied it on the side and popped it out. Um, questionable supervision, but excellent problem solving, if I do say so myself. But that mentality of I can do it all by myself followed me for a really, really long time. I think until I was 21 years old. So remember, baptized at eight, but we're moving forward a little bit. My first word is self-reliant. So as an army brat, we moved every three years, two and a half to three years. Um, and so I, moving frequently gave me an opportunity to rely on myself. I was responsible for my success, my identity, my relevance, anything that I could create in my own world because it moved every three years. Um, I don't think it was inherently bad. It was just very inwardly focused, which created a lot of trauma and turmoil around me. So um, I placed my purpose in getting the best grades, having the best reputation, having the right friends, things like that. Um, and I think that my, my world revolved around self. Whatever made life easier for me, made me look better, made me more appealing to others, those are the choices that I made. I did this proclaiming Christianity. So I sat in the seats every week. I was in the church, but I was not part of it. But I didn't realize that at the time. I, for a long time, I didn't realize that. Catherine quoted this last week, but it's true for me too, that Romans 3.11 says, no one understands, no one seeks for God. And I desired anything but God because I only desired self. I lived my life like I only valued me. Um, and I was constantly pushing people away in my pride and my selfishness. I didn't have to learn to restore relationships because I just moved. And so I could kind of create chaos and then move and then create chaos and then move. It's been interesting being back. And I work in the town where I went to high school. And I see people, I'm like, do we like each other? Do we not? It's been 20 years. Do we care? Um, but it's been kind of a reminder of just mean things that I did. I think the word I would use to describe me was mean. Um, my mom and my aunt would cry when we would go to family functions because of how mean I was to my cousin. 
I packed her suitcase up one time and threw her out of my house because she didn't like the band Hanson. So it was like really, really trivial things. It was bad. It was, it was bad. Um, so me, that was, that was me. Um, I think a shift happened in our family around 2004. March 16, 2004, my dad deployed to Iraq. March 14, 2005, he came back. I remember that because my birthday is March 15th, and that was the first time that he had been at two birthdays back-to-back with just Army stuff. Um, We got one video chat, so it's completely different than how people are deployed now. That's my mom and my little sister sitting on her lap, and then you can kind of see my dad on the other side. We were in a big auditorium like this. You literally just got to see his face, but we went a year just emails, um, some phone calls, but really pretty limited conversation uh, as my dad was deployed. On Mother's Day, so another important Mother's Day for our family, they call it Black Sunday. So there was an attack on my dad's fob where he lived in Iraq, um, and they, it's the highest casualty day for first cab, so out of Fort Hood since Vietnam. Um, there's a documentary about it by the National Geographic because of how impactful that day was and kind of what it meant for the greater Iraqi war. My dad saw and experienced a lot in his year while he was gone, and it created a lot of division. Um, We laugh about it now, but my dad's first day back, his first dinner back, they tell them, like, you know, you've been gone, dynamics in the family have changed, just kind of sit back and relax. And my mom was quoting Napoleon Dynamite at somebody in our family and told us to just shut up and eat our dinner and was calling us Fat Lawrence, because that's what happens when you quote Napoleon Dynamite. And my dad was like, this family has gone off the rails while I was gone. So we joke about it now. Dad has seen the movie, um, but it wasn't always like that. While my dad was deployed, he sustained a brain injury and had pretty bad PTSD. Um, So there was a lot of years of just roughness, um, yelling and frustration. It wasn't the, the fun and joyful home that I had known to grow up in. I would say, by the grace of God, we've come a really long way. Um, Lots of prayer, lots of counseling, lots of just pouring into community, and just a lot of surrendering of what happened. Um, There's an army buzzword called resiliency, and I would say that our family um, has shown that. But I don't say that as an example of what we have done, but what God has done um, to and through our family. So that was when things began to shift a little bit for me. So summer of 2006, we left my brother here. He went to Oklahoma State. He would eventually go to Texas A&M, but he was going to go to Oklahoma State. And me and my little sister and my parents and our dog and cat packed up and moved to South Carolina. So these, I said I owe my girls an apology because I make fun of their new language. And then I realized we had a new, we had our own language. These are the beefs, and we all had nicknames. Um, I was Keebs because I was the shortest one, like a Keebler elf. So that's what my friends from high school call me. But these were, these are my girls in, in high school. So I started there my junior and senior year. I would say that we were good girls. Not necessarily all of us were Christians. We were really, really supportive of each other. We really wanted people to do well, but it wasn't from a Christian background. Um, Achievement culture was very real in my group of friends. So Alexis, the one on the end, is a pediatrician. Rachel, who's standing, I'm on the right, uh, bottom side. Rachel is standing above me. She's a nurse anesthetist. Blair played for the New York Philharmonic. So kind of whatever their their talent was, they they excelled at it. Um, 
I, but I think we had good intention. So achievement culture was the thing, but I, I really do think we had good intentions. I don't remember everyone's nickname. Um, I just remember mine was Keeps, and that's what they called me. So this was a shift in my mindset. I wasn't friends with the mean girls anymore, which decreased my temptation to be a mean girl, I think. So Colossians 2, 6 through 7 says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in, thank in thanksgiving. For me, moving was an excuse to not plant roots like scripture instructs us to. My physical moving meant I didn't, I didn't feel the need to place roots in my Christian faith either, which should have been the opposite, that if I had the opportunity to have a firm foundation in something, it should have been the word of God, but that's not what I chose. Um, I was a nomad in my Christian walk just like I was physically. And I would use excuses like, how could I plant roots in anything if my life is marked by change? What did planting roots even look like? These were the things that I told myself to avoid the conviction of my nomadic walk with Christ. Um, I would come to need those roots like I didn't know I needed when I went to college. I had choice to go to two, I only applied to two schools um, because on, and on the day that my application was due was when they were in the mail. Don't do that if you were seniors, please apply early. But Clemson and University of South Carolina is where I was gonna go. I chose South Carolina, it was 30 minutes away, it was in the capital city. So it would be like y'all going to UT, it really wasn't that far away. I wanted to be close. I didn't wanna be two and a half hours away from home. I didn't wanna be half a country away like my big brother was who was transferring to Texas A&M that semester. Um, but God knew better than I did. This is when I would say that God's relentless pursuit of me became evidence. So, like I said, I was baptized when I was eight. Here I was at 18, and I had no idea what a personal relationship with the Lord looked like as my parents were moving to Germany. So they were supposed to have one more year in Columbia, South Carolina, where I lived, and my dad went to a meeting. They said, Duckworth, you're moving to Germany, and they left that summer. Um, they moved me in the dorm, I think on a Saturday, and they PCS that Monday, so I was by myself. The guy that I had been dating went to Virginia Tech, which was four hours away, so I was in my dorm room by myself. I got what I asked for. I asked to do life by myself, but it's not what I needed. Um, I, I hadn't grown in my faith like I needed to do to stand firm in this situation. So throughout the next three and a half years, the concept of me and my individuality would continue to grow, and people inadvertently instilled this in me. So I called my grandpa, my dad's dad, one, um, I guess October, I don't know, and I said, hey, I'm homesick. And he said, great, I'm buying you a plane ticket. So I came home to Oklahoma for Thanksgiving. And my dad's older brother just held me and cried, and I'm so proud of you, you're so strong, you're so independent, you've done this on your own. So he was trying to encourage me, but Big Al is what I call him. What Big Al was doing was continuing to bolster this false sense of security in me that I didn't need anybody else and that I could do it on my own. I spent a lot of time visiting other friends at their colleges. So the Beefs went to, I think, four different schools. Um, I missed a lot of church. I didn't go. Um, part of it was being gone, but part of it was me choosing that I didn't want to be there. I continued to say that I was a Christian, but I made choices that were counterintuitive to what my mouth said. Um, I, it wasn't bad, like I was making better choices than a lot of my friends, but I definitely wasn't God honoring, and that's what I keep coming back to. 
So this picture is from, I went on a mission trip to the, Dominic the Dominican Republic the summer after I graduated from high school. I'm in the top corner, my little sister's in the bottom corner. Next to her is Krista, next to her is Jonathan, and then behind me is Mike. So these were kind of my core five from church, um, or I guess four plus me. Mike and Jonathan became huge parts of God's pursuit of me. I was really good at this point at keeping my church friends separate from my school friends, but Mike was both. So Mike was a year behind me in high school, and then Jonathan was two grades behind us, but he went to another school. Um, Jonathan's friends that had recently graduated started going to a church in Columbia, so 30, probably 45 minutes away from where he lived. He lived in the country. Um, it met on Sunday nights, which means I didn't have an excuse because he knew I was back in town. So Jonathan would drive to my dorm and pick me up and take me to church. Um, I, more than wanting to go to church, I didn't want to disappoint Jonathan. It was still kind of keeping up this facade of I was somebody different than I said I was. Mike was back at the high school I graduated from, and his mom, Kathy, recognized that I wasn't coming to church. So Mike would call me and say, my mom wants to see you. I would go and stay at Mike's house. His mom would cook for me, do my laundry, and really the only Sundays that I would go back to the church that I grew up in was when Kathy would invite me into her home. My community then, my community now, is a representation of God's relentless pursuit of me. Chris talked about this a little bit on his talk of being aware of who is around you and what influences you have in your lives. Um, I didn't realize at the time how important Mike and Jonathan were, and they were being faithful to the convictions that they had about calling me to repentance. So the first Sunday at Midtown, that's the church that Jonathan and I would go to, this was the sermon placard. So it's a baby food tray that says, feed yourself in it. So it was my, sem my second semester in college, and the topic was Hebrews 5, 12 through 14. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. I was haunted. I had been in church my entire life. Not only was I not in a place to eat the meat, to teach, I didn't even want the milk. And so I was convicted of the spirit that I was feeding off of something, but it was not the word of God. It was myself. And my convictions were consuming because we're tempted to find identity in anything other than God, like Romans 3 tells us. And I, I had that conviction, but I wasn't willing to change. Jonathan and then a friend, Wes and Alyssa, the four of us would usually go after, go out uh, ice cream or whatever after Midtown, and we would process through what we talked about in our sermons. They were very good at being gentle with their words, but not shortchanging the truth of the repentance that I needed. Um, I don't think I realized how delicate that balance was of what they were doing until recently. Um, I kept going to Midtown in college, but I, I sat in the seats, I consumed the sermons, and I left. Um, John Ludovita was the name of my pastor. We called him Luda. I would consume Luda's words, but as soon as I walked out the door, they didn't affect me and they didn't have change. So I had one foot in the church, one foot out in the world, which means I was heavy on conviction and I didn't know what to do with my sin. I thought I had freedom, that I found the balance, but if that is true for you, you're not living, you're just stuck. And that is not what God wants for us. He doesn't want us to just walk around with the shame 
and the weight of our sin. He wants us to fully buy into the community that we're with and find freedom that is, that is only in Christ. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to keep running because I enjoyed my sin like we all do. So summer of 2011, hey, where'd my picture go? Oh, it's not there. Sad day. Um, nope. There was a picture, picture, a picture with a bunch of sheep and green hills and one shepherd. So summer of 2011, the summer before I graduated from college, my parents were still in Germany. They needed another leader to go on a mission trip to Romania. So I was put on the bus 24 hours with a bunch of teenagers to Romania. My sister was there, so I knew her. Um, we were going with Club Beyond, which is young life for military teens. Each night we had tent discussion, so I had six girls and then invited the translators and the nurses um, into our tent. We had leader meetings in the morning and Jake Bland, because he talked about how boring his name was, would lead the discussions. And he would say, you know, this is the schedule for the day. This is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to talk about in tent tonight. So this is where I need some audience help. There is a rule at impact camp that you're not allowed to leave Jesus dead. Jake Bland did not grow up at TBC, therefore he did not participate in that rule. And he said, tonight we're going to talk about sin, but we're not going to talk about grace. I don't know the ethical implications of that, but I know it worked for me. And I had never thought about the weight of my sin until that time in the tent. So the girls in the tent, you know, there's pride. I argue with my parents. I disrespect my, or I hit my sisters or whatever. There was kind of those surface level sins, and then it got real. There was a suicide of a sister. There was a recent hospitalization and discharge for an eating disorder. She got on the bus and came to Romania. There was a sexual assault of another sister that ended in abortion because she took her younger sister to a party. I was the one that was supposed to be leading that conversation, and these high schoolers were the ones that were ministering to me in that moment. So if you think that you don't have an influence on us, it, you're, it's not true. And I remember sitting there, there was despair, distress, and depravity, and there's nothing to do but take it to the cross. And I, I, I didn't know what to do, because Jake said, don't talk about grace. But in that moment, I had never known that I needed grace because I heard it every Sunday. And so I, I took it for granted because I already knew what it was. I began to understand that I needed Christ, and I was thankful for the crosswalk that next night because I believe that's when I fully repented and became a follower of Christ. So I say I was baptized and I became a believer at eight, but I didn't surrender my life until I was 21. I was running from the summer of 2008 to 2011. He was relentlessly pursuing me to come to him, but Christ beckons us into a relationship with him. He doesn't force us into one, but he makes it where nothing else is desirable except for him and what he has to offer us. He desires to be the, close to those that he calls his children, and he delights in us and, and finds joy in us and desires for us to have that freedom. He didn't want us to have the weight that was in that tent. He wants us to have the freedom that comes from Christ. So when I gave my testimony a few summers ago, I talked about God's faithfulness to Chris and I in a really difficult time in our relationship. When Dave gave his talk two weeks ago, I felt like he covered a lot of the, th the same things that I would have said. So listen to that if you haven't. 
but I was thinking, what was different from when I was eight until when I was 21? Some of it is just spiritual maturity. I needed to learn the word. But a lot of it was I needed to learn how to fight. So my last word is warfare. So when I was thinking about what was missing, it was that I didn't understand that a life of a Christian is a life of war. I, I don't think that I expected to always have it easy, but I didn't expect what was to come. So I want to make this clear. When you become a Christian, the work is done. You are a new creation. You are declared righteous, you are justified before the Father, and you are redeemed by the sacrifice of the Son. That is not up for debate. But in a lot of ways, the work is just beginning, and that's what I missed. So once we become a Christian, we continually have to walk until we reach glory through, through our sanctification. I think that started for me in August 7th of 2012. I went to Texas Tech, so that was a trick question earlier. It is no longer, it is not UT versus A&M. I tell Chris, Texas Tech pays our bills, so we have to pay for their, or we have to cheer for them because that's where I went to school. He does not agree with that. But I was studying for the last final of the first semester of my grad school, um, my anatomy test, and a name popped up on my phone. He hadn't called in a while, and he didn't usually call, so I thought it was weird, so I answered it. He told me Ashley was in surgery. So Ashley, she was Tiger Beef because she went to Clemson. So she was in surgery for a brain aneurysm. So she had a ballooning blood vessel that is frequently fatal. I realized it wasn't good, but I did not know that that call would change my life. He was back home, so I said, hey, keep me updated, I'm gonna go study. He called me about an hour later and said, Ash is gone. So I had just lost one of my best friends. At her funeral, they handed out shirts and bracelets that said live life to the fullest, and I realized then Ashley lived the best life she would ever have because Ashley was not a Christian. So I knew that Ashley wasn't a Christian. I would let her say things that I knew were not true, and I didn't counter it. She had been one of my best friends for six years, and I gave her the gospel zero times. And when I was thinking of this, I'm like, it's because I let her live her truth. And how common, like, we say those things now. Um, but I, I realized I will not spend my eternity with Ashley. And that wrecked me in a way that I hadn't anticipated. But it also gave me an urgency to share the gospel. I began engaging my friends in conversations about the gospel. I started a Bible study at my school. I dove headfirst in my, into my church at Lubbock. That community there really helped me with the situation, especially my... Um, Sunday school leader named Brittany. So it continued to build in me the fact that God's people were a basis of support and steadfastness in our times of trouble. Psalm 29:11 says the Lord gives strength to his people and he blesses his people with peace. That summer I felt like I had neither of those, but pressing into the Lord helped me believe that he was good and he could give me peace and chaos. So I wrapped up at tech. I came back here to start school June 2014. I started meeting Caleb is right. My pictures are not popping up. I don't know. At least Graham wasn't sideways like we thought he was going to be. But I started uh, meeting with a lady at the church named Lenny Glenn. Her first assignment for me was writing down every identifier of who we are in Christ found in the book of Ephesians. So if the war of Christianity, like the war that we engage, I believe starts with who we are. If you don't know who you are in Christ, start with the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians ends with Ephesians 6, 16 through 18 says, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith 
which you can extinguish all the flames, uh, flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. We've probably all heard these verses about putting on the armor of God, but I've begun to read it in a new light. First, the necessity of armor tells us that there will be warfare. Second, when we are under attack, the only offensive weapon we have to fight back with is the word of God. You cannot fight back against what is coming at you if you do not know the word of God. Satan knows your flesh and he will appeal to it. So we, we have to continue to learn the word of God so that we can say that back when the lies are, are said to us. This is what Jesus did with Satan in the garden. It's what Adam fail, or Adam and Eve failed to do to the serpent in the first garden. She, Eve didn't know scripture, so it was allowed, it to be, allowed to be twisted, and she was able to believe a lie. But we must make war. Part of me meeting with Lenny was also reading the book of Joshua. We would read a page on the Israelites, 12,000 men died, is God good? Sunday school answer is yes, show me in this text. So Lenny really taught me how to search for the goodness of God in scripture when it's not glaring, glaringly obvious from the words that are on this page. She was teaching me to wage war with the doubts of the world and to rely on who God is and what he was doing for me. I, when kind of going through these verses of making war, um, reading through these, I'm like, we've heard most of them, but I hadn't thought about them in the war text, or war context. So fight the good fight, wage the good warfare. You're a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Put to death, therefore. Your flesh wages war against your soul. God's word is sharper than any two-edged sword. The, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. If it is this clear in scripture, why is warfare surprising to us? I think it is because some of us expect to have an easy life after coming to Christ, but worse, I think it's we think we deserve an easy life after coming to Christ. So when we declare life after Christ, we are declaring war on the devil and his schemes. We're aligning our allegiances to God, and we are actively putting to death the flesh, earthly desires, and the lies of Satan. This is an active situation. You can't just sit there and passively consume like I did for 15 years. I don't know, I'm not good at math. Until I was 21, that you, you have to actively try these things. I also thought it was interesting that most of these verses came from First and Second Timothy, who were being written to a person younger than them. It's almost like Paul knew that the fight for the soul began when you were young and that you needed encouragement to get through that. One of my greatest weapons in this war is my community group, like it had been with Jonathan and Mike, like it was with my group in Columbia, or in Lubbock, like it is here. So the top picture, well, you see Katie in both of these. Um, the top picture is who we refer to as our sister wives, if you hear us saying that. And then down in this bottom picture, so actually on the right with the baby and the wrap, that's um, Wesley's wife. And then on the end is Robert's mom. So I consider both of them aspects of my community. Um, they're a physical representation of what Proverbs 11 says, where there is no guidance of people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. I take my struggles to my community, and they bring theirs to me, and we fight the war together. So just like Chris said a couple weeks ago, you are saved, but you are saved to a people to wage this war with you. You are not alone. So that is something that I think we, 
I have to actively try to not do it by myself. Katie will say, hey, you good? Let's talk about that. She knows my heart. She knows my struggles. And we call each other on that. They, they use God's word to show me his goodness when I am either refusing to see it or I am unable to see it because both of those situations have been true. Thinking back through the eight years, there's been marital struggles, miscarriages, death of family members. Work is hard, and so taking that to each other too. But they continue to push me back to Christ when I want to do anything but that. 1 Corinthians 15 says, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So to end on an encouraging note, We have faith that the war against our flesh has been won because Jesus already won it for us. Choosing Christ is choosing rebellion against Satan, but the same power that rose Jesus from the grave is in those who are his children to fight back in this warfare. In his grace, Jesus not only defeated death like the prophecy said he would, but he rose to conquer my sin. That same power is what allows me to have victories of the things my flesh tempts me with. The quote that I found is, there's no holiness without a warfare. Saved souls will always be found to have fought the fight. This should encourage those of you who, believers, who still battle with sin. This is expected, but you are equipped for victory, and you're not alone. As one author puts it, you are a child in your father's house, but you are a soldier in the Savior's war. So fight the war while you rest in peace. Thanks.